How many people here would like to hear God speak to you today? Raise your hand if you would like to hear God speak to you today. Well, I, I, I want you to know if you're a visitor here with us, we are a Bible-believing church, Amen. which means a lot of things, but among which it means that we believe when God's word is read, God's voice is heard. And in fact, we believe when God's word is preached, and, 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 and when we say preach, it, we don't mean just a motivational talk, this is not a lecture, this is not, uh, uh, you know, I'm just kind of, kind of pumping people up, you know, and giving a, just kind of a TED talk, this is not, that's not preaching. Preaching is saying what God said, proclaiming what God has done, that's preaching. And we believe here, because we're a Bible-believing church, that when the word of God is truly preached... His voice is heard. So hear the word of the Lord to you this morning. I know there's a lot of people going through a lot of things right now, and there's a lot of things going on in our world today. I want you to hear God's voice. In fact, will you do something for me? Will you stand for the reading of God's word together as we read Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1? In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, He gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. This is God's word. Father, I pray right now that you would quicken, that you would illuminate us to hear your voice in your word, Lord, that we would, as we're hearing this today, you would apply it specifically to each one of us where we need to hear it. Lord, would you speak, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to dive right into this. This is a powerful text of scripture, kind of uh, uh, t- picking up in, the, in Acts where the gospel of Luke left off. And there's three things I want you to see in here that I think will speak directly to who we are as a church and where we are in our society right now. Very quickly, they are Jesus' mission, Jesus' method, and Jesus' power. Let's look at them real quickly. First, Jesus' mission. Look at verse one again. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, remember, Acts is volume two of a two-part work. 
The Gospel of Luke uh, was volume one, and, and Luke in the Gospel was only the beginning. It's the only Gospel with a sequel, or more accurately, a second part to the same story. In the academic world, they call it Luke-Acts, because it's one story in two volumes. So Luke is saying this, hey Theophilus, Jesus' story isn't finished. It's not over. The Gospel of Luke was just the beginning. There's more. This same Jesus, very important, he says, this same Jesus who did these extraordinary things in volume one continued to do these extraordinary things through his body, the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The story isn't over. And in fact, just to kind of point that out, if you've you got a bulletin on the way in, there's an insert in the bulletin. Would you just pull that out? I want you to, to see that. If, if you're here, if you're watching uh, on live stream, there'll be a picture of it on the screen up there. Here's a picture up here. I printed that out because I'm pretty sure most of you can't read that. Maybe the, some young people here, you know, uh, can read that. But you've got it in your bulletin right there. So pull that out. And I want you to see what this is. These are parallels between Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. Because the point that Luke is making here is the story is still the, the same Jesus who was doing stuff and the gospel of Luke is still doing stuff. So, so just look and compare it. So for example, there's the preface to Theophilus in Luke's gospel. There's a preface to Theophilus in Acts. In Luke, the spirit descends on Jesus as he prays. On Acts, the spirit comes on the apostles as they pray. In Luke, there's a sermon that declares prophecy is fulfilled. In Acts, there's a sermon declaring prophecy fulfilled. In Luke, Jesus heals a lame man. In Acts, Peter heals a lame man. In Luke, religious leaders attack Jesus. In Acts, religious leaders attack Jesus. In Luke, a centurion invites Jesus to his house. In Acts, a centurion invites Peter to his house. In Luke, Jesus raises the widow's son from dead. In Acts, Peter raises a widow from death. In Luke, there's missionary journeys to the Gentile. In Acts, missionary journeys to the Gentile. In Luke, Jesus travels to Jerusalem. In Acts, Paul travels to Jerusalem. In Luke, Jesus is received favorably. In Acts, Paul is received favorably. In Luke, Jesus is devoted to the temple. In Acts, Paul is devoted to the temple. In Luke, the Sadducees oppose Jesus, but the scribes support him. In Acts, the Sadducees oppose Paul, but the Pharisees support him. In Luke, Jesus breaks bread and gives thanks. Paul breaks bread and gives thanks in Acts. In Luke, Jesus is seized by an angry mob. In Acts, Paul is seized by an angry mob. In Luke, Jesus is slapped by the high priest's aides. In Acts, Paul is slapped at the high priest's command. In Luke, Jesus is tried four times, declared innocent three times. In Acts, Paul is tried four times, declared innocent three times. In Luke, Jesus is rejected by the Jews. In Acts, Paul is rejected by the Jews. In Luke, Jesus is regarded favorably by a centurion. In Acts, Paul is regarded favorably by a centurion. And finally, in Luke, there's a final confirmation that the scriptures have been fulfilled. And in Acts, there's a final confirmation that the scriptures have been fulfilled. Now, I know that took a little bit to go through all of that, but does this strike you as anything? I mean, what do you think Luke is trying to say here? I think he's trying to say that the lives of the disciples in the early church were like a mirror. They reflected the life of Jesus. So that the story of Jesus continued. They were so full of the Spirit, so baptized into the words of Jesus that they acted like Jesus. And the story goes on to us today. The story isn't over. There's more. There's more. Our lives are supposed to reflect the master's life. Let me ask you a question. Does your life look like Jesus? 
I mean, listen, Acts isn't just a history book of something that happened 2,000 years ago, never to be repeated again, because God isn't the great I used to could. He is the great I am. And we're called into the story. We have the same Jesus. He said the same Jesus was going to come back. We have the same Jesus. We have the same Holy Spirit. And, and, and our lives should reflect his, which means the stuff that happened in chapter 1 of the book of Acts should be happening in a new life church too. In fact, the book of Acts really doesn't have much of an ending at all. I mean, it starts with a bang, but at the end, you get to the end of the story, Paul's, you know, under house arrest in Rome, and it says he was preaching the kingdom, and he was telling people about Jesus, and then it's over. There's no ending. There's no denouement. There's no resolution to the story. It just just is over. Why? Because Luke is saying, this is our story. We're part of this story, and, and we're in our chapters now. It's like, you know, there's chapter 28 of Acts. It's like chapter 29, and here we are, or chapter 2021, whatever you want to call it. But it's the same Holy Spirit, and we're following the same Jesus. So here's what was happening. The gospel of Luke was just the beginning of what Jesus began to do and teach. And now, listen, it's very important. Our mission is a continuation of Jesus' mission. Luke was what Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is the continuing story, and we have the same mission. Now, notice the content of this mission, verse 3. He showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, stop right there for a second. This is, you know, I was thinking about this this week. Why did he have to give many convincing proofs that he was alive. I mean, I mean, if you're dead, if you're a dead dude and you came back, how many times you got to show up before people believe you? You know, in, in Matthew 28, right before Jesus ascended, the, the text says, you know, here he is. He's the risen Lord. And it said some of them doubted. The brother's standing right there. Why did he have to give many convincing proofs? Here's why. They didn't believe it. It was hard to believe. There he is right there. And they they just couldn't believe their eyes. Now, here's why this is important. There's a common assumption out there today, especially in skeptical thinkers, that, listen, 2,000 years ago, those people were just naive. They were superstitious people. They would just believe everything, you know. They weren't that smart. But look, we are scientific people. We are smarter, as if the IQ has gone up in the last 2,000 years, which, by the way, it actually hasn't. And, and just that belief is a very offensive belief that just because we came after them, we're somehow smarter than them. You want to talk about arrogance for a second? But, but their belief is, well, they were, you know, they were easily taken in, but we would know dead people don't get up out of the grave. They knew dead people didn't get up out of the grave. That's why it was so hard to convince them. And Jesus himself had to keep coming back for 40 days, coming back, coming back. I'm alive, still alive, still alive. Because they didn't believe it. They didn't get it because they weren't looking for that. See, it's important for you to know, in the first century, they may have been more open to the supernatural than we are, but they were no more open to the resurrection. See, the Greeks believed that you don't, why would you even want a resurrected body? They believe you want to get rid of the body. The body is evil, materials bad, spirits good, mind the ideal, that's good. So you want to get rid of the body. So they wouldn't even want a resurrected body. They would be like, ooh, yuck, gross. So they didn't even believe that. In fact, in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching and they get to, he's the, he talks about the resurrection of the body, the text will say they sneered at him which is a word I haven't used lately, sneer. How about that? 
They, why? Because they're like, gross, man. Resurrection of the body. Who wants that? The Jews believed, many of them, not all of them, not all of them, many of the Jews believed in the first century that there would be a resurrection at the end of time when everybody was raised. Not everybody. Sadducees didn't believe that. Other groups didn't believe that. But many believed at the end of time there'd be one resurrection where everybody was raised. But nobody, nobody, nobody believed that the resurrection would be one guy in the middle of history. They didn't believe it. So what happened? Jesus gave them evidence, proof that he was alive over and over again, and they were forced to believe it, even though it went against all their biases. Now, why is that important? Here's why this is important. Because that means that Christian truth is historic, objective fact. Okay, what what we're talking about up here today is not some wishful thinking, hope he's alive, hope the guy that we're singing to this morning hears us, you know. It's not, wish, it's not subjective, wishful thinking. It's objective, historic fact. And that changes everything. Yes. Tim Keller is really good on this. He says in, in, in one of his books that sometimes people, he, he planted church in Manhattan. And I think he's got church in each of the boroughs of, of New York City. Um, he says that sometimes people will come to him and say, you know, I'm thinking of becoming a Christian. And he'll say, okay, really? Well, why? And they'll say, well, I think I need something in my life. Oh, okay, you need something in your life. What do you need? Well, I, you know, I feel like I need some inspiration. Well, okay, I mean, you know, Christianity is a good place to get inspiration, but you can get inspiration from a lot of places. Well, I feel like I need some strength in my life. Okay, well, you know, Christianity will bring you strength. I feel like I need some, you know, some tools to go through hard times. Okay, that's good. Christianity will do that. But then they'll say something like this, but I kind of need to know, you know, if I become a Christian, I'm considering, I'm considering it. But if I become a Christian, you know, do, do I, can I still do this? If I become a Christian, can, am I not allowed to do this over here? Like, do I have to, do I have to, you know, there's this one thing in the Bible. Do I have to believe that one thing in the Bible? Like, do I, because I don't want, you know, I'm thinking about becoming, and, and, and here's what he would say. Listen, listen, um, um, you're acting, you're treating Christianity as if it's some consumer good that you're going to try out, but you hope it doesn't, you know, have side effects. Like, I'm considering Christianity, but I want to make sure I'm not allergic to anything, you know, in the, I want to make sure I can do everything. He says, therefore, listen, don't ask if Christianity is relevant. Not at first. Don't ask if Christianity is practical. Not at first. Ask, is it true? Did it happen? And if it's true, then it will be practical and relevant and fulfilling. You say, how is that? Well, listen, just listen. What if you could be sure? What if the just think, do this thought experiment with me. What if you could be absolutely 100% sure that no matter how bad things get in this world, no matter what sorrows you have experienced, what suffering you have been through, that there is coming a day when everything will be made right? Like, what if you could actually be What if you could be so sure that every sorrow you have ever experienced is temporary and will one day be reversed so that the glory then will be greater because of this here? And what if that wasn't wishful thinking? What if there was evidence? Would that be practical? Would that be relevant? You think that would change your life? Yes. I mean, I'll just illustrate, you know, lately I've been kind of reminiscent. <laughs> and, and maybe it's because we have this 40th anniversary for the church coming up and, and dad's telling stories all over the place. Uh, or, or maybe it's the fact Graham's getting married, you know, and we're getting reminiscent. And uh, maybe it's the fact that I'm 50 this year and I, uh, that's officially old dude category. And um, uh, I don't know if, 
if, you know, I'm just getting, remin- but I'm getting reminiscent and I'm just remembering people. And, and this week I've been thinking a lot about our, our brother, Joe Vincent, who went on to be with the Lord a few years ago. And, and, and those of you who know Joe, he was an elder. He served as an elder here for decades. He was a man of prayer, man of faith. I mean, you bump into him, scripture would come out. He'd just start quoting scripture. You know, and if you were facing something, he'd email you a Word document with scriptures that he and Gene prayed. How many times, a lot of people, how many people got an email from him with scriptures? Okay, look at that, a bunch of people. I've just been thinking about Joe lately. And we sang the doxology, and he used to, in elders meeting, we get to the end of the elders meeting, everybody's looking around, are we we done? Is the Holy Spirit done? And he would just lead into the doxology. Oh, I miss it. And I've just been thinking about him, and and he had this little thing. He had a name for me. And I'm going to tell it to you, but you're going to think it's goofy. And if I was you, I think this is goofy too, okay? So you're, you have my permission to think this is goofy. He called me BPE, best pastor ever. That was my nickname. I know, I know, it's corny. I know, I knew that, all right? But, you know, here's the thing. I don't, I don't actually believe that, okay? So I don't think, oh, wow, he's not. He thinks he's the best. No, I don't believe but it was kind of our thing. And it's kind of nice to hear every once in a while. And so he would say, hey, BPE. He, all of his emails, would, that's how he would say. And sometimes he'd, he'd, we'd give a fist bump, hey, BPE. Now, what if I could be absolutely sure? Not wishful thinking. What if I had evidence and I could be sure that one day I'm going to see Joe again and he's going to be risen from the dead and I'm going to be risen from the dead and I'm going to see him and he's going to get that corny little smile on his face and he's going to say, hey, BPE. What if I could be, you think that'd be practical? You think that'd be encouraging? Of course it would. Of course it would. What if you could be sure that when you face death, You're not going to utter blackness and nothingness, but you're going to be in the arms of God. Wouldn't that be practical? Listen, if the resurrection is true, it's very relevant. It's very practical. So ask this question, is it true? Now, I know because of some people I talked to that were watching online a couple weeks ago on Easter and and, and that were here, there's a couple people here who are really struggling with this. Did it really happen? And I recommended a book a couple weeks ago by J. Warner Wallace. I'll recommend another book. This one's a little bit, uh, somebody wanted a more academic treatment. This is the definitive academic book on the resurrection of Jesus. It's called The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. I will warn you, it is very academic and it's 818 pages. So you probably won't finish it by Thursday. So here's the deal. Part of Jesus' mission was giving evidence that he was alive. And that's part of our mission too. See, we should live in such a way that our lives are evidence that Jesus is alive. In other words, like the early church, you saw how the early church mirrored his life. Like that, our lives are supposed to be lived in such a way that they're inexplicable apart from God. The people look at us and go, I don't, they've got this character, they've got this peace in the middle of the storm, they've got, I, I, how is that possible? It's the way we're supposed to be living. Back to verse 3, back to verse 3, Acts 1. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now get this. This is the risen, glorified, just conquered death 
just conquered the grave, just plundered hell, has the keys, Revelation 1 says, of death and hell. You know, they're like swinging from his belt here. He's about to ascend to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And what does he say? What does he talk about? The same thing he talked about the whole time he was alive on earth before the the kingdom of God. Now, what is that? Well, a kingdom is the domain of a king. Phil spoke about this about a month ago. He talked about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God as king. And Jesus' mission was he came to announce the kingdom. He came to preach the kingdom. He came to demonstrate the kingdom through healings and signs and wonders and exorcisms and self-sacrifice to the point of death on a cross. I mean, we, we like to demonstrate the kingdom stuff, don't we, when it's healings and exorcisms and signs and wonders, but, but, but the take up your cross daily and follow me. <laughs> that, that's the part of the kingdom we don't really like, right? But that's what we've been called. This was Jesus' mission, and our mission is a continuation of his. Jesus put it this way, John 20, verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So we've been sent just like Jesus, and and to be the church means to be sent ones. Jesus sent us the same way the Father sent him, and that means our mission is to be a continuation of his mission, which was all about the kingdom of God. You don't believe me? Let me just let Scripture make my argument for me. I'll give you several Scriptures. You just write down the references rather than try to turn to all of them too quickly. The Gospel of Mark begins. Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus shows up and says, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So the first time in the Gospel when Jesus shows up to preach, he's preaching the kingdom of God. Matthew 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. What was he preaching? The kingdom of God. Chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. So he'd already done the 12. Now he's doing 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place that he was about to go. And here's what he said. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. So let's just review. Jesus announced the kingdom. He preached the kingdom. He demonstrated the kingdom. Then he told the 12 to do the same thing. Then he told the 72 to do the same thing. And then he tells us to do the same thing. And the kingdom of God, you guys, is not just the church. It's important that you get that. Like, he didn't say, I want you to go out and hold worship services. Although worship services are good. Like, what we're doing right here today, this is part of the kingdom, but this is not the sum total of the kingdom going to church, right? He didn't say, go out and have everybody pray the sinner's prayer. He didn't say that. He said, make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. That's kingdom stuff. It's not that we're against it. We're for the sinner's prayer. But that ain't the whole story of the kingdom. The kingdom is the rule and reign of the one true king. And it encompasses every area of life. It encompasses how you treat your spouse. 
how you raise your kids, how you steward your money. It includes everything, like arts, media, education, government. We should be doing these things by the kingdom. Jesus told us to pray that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And so when when you are seeing God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, you know what you're saying? The kingdom. That's what you're seeing. Most beautiful example I could give you of that is, is the story of what's happened in, in Lubin, Haiti. And, and, and many of you have been there uh, to Haiti and, and in Lubin, and, and you know the story of what God has done in that village since Bo, Pastor Bo, went there many years ago. I don't know what it is now, 12 or, or I, I can't even remember how many years ago it was now. Uh, when he went into that village, and, and, and please forgive me if I don't have all the details of this story 100%, Okay, Uh, but I I believe it it is the case that when he first went into that village, there were five witch doctors there. There was a smell of rotting carcasses because that's where he would drive off evil spirits in that village. And he came in and he brought the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. And, and, And we've partnered with him and we've sent teams down to preach, to teach the Bible, to build stuff, to give stuff. And now what's happened in that village, uh, the last time I was there anyway, there was only one witch doctor. There were no rotting carcasses. There was a church built there, people hearing the gospel, worshiping the Lord. There was a school with kids getting educated. Reading, writing, I almost said arithmetic. When's the last time I said arithmetic? Math, the Bible, they're learning stuff, they're being fed, there's economic impact, there's clean water there now, there's, you know, they've got some animal husbandry going on. Here's my point. The kingdom came into Lubin and changed everything. Changed everything. That's Jesus' mission. And we want to be a part of that. So listen, wherever you are planted, uh, you, you bring the kingdom there. You, 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 you be a kingdom man or a kingdom woman right there. And if you're a kid, listen to this right now. You might say, well, listen, I don't really have authority over thing, anything. Do you have a room? If you got a room, you got some authority over that room. Say, you know what? I'm bringing the kingdom into this room. And what's going to happen in this room is going to be kingdom stuff. And I'm going to clean my room. <laughs> Okay, that might not be in the Bible, but I feel like all the moms and dads here would say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes kingdom stuff is, is preaching the gospel, giving the whole gospel. And sometimes it's, it's a pre-evangelism move. It's just being kind to someone and building a relationship and listening to them so that one time you will be able to give the gospel. This week we have, on Tuesday mornings, we have our staff meeting every other Tuesday morning. And, and normally in our staff meeting, I teach for a while, and Mavis leads worship, and we sing, and then we pray for you guys. And, and we do some strategizing, but we, we spend more time in worship and prayer and the word as a staff. And we pray for you guys, and, and when we know things are going on, and, and you've given us permission to share, we share it with the team, and we pray. But this past Tuesday, we did something a little bit different. We got a new neighbor that moved in down the road here on Goose Creek Road. You may have noticed this. It's the 8th Division of the LMPD. Uh, they moved their headquarters right down here on Goose Creek Road. And so in order just to be good neighbors uh, and just bless these men and women who have a crazy hard job, uh, we brought them lunch. Instead of having staff meeting, that was our staff meeting. We brought them some Smoked chicken wings, smoked beef brisket. Language of love. Yeah, it's a language of love. Yeah, 
uh, Mavis made some sods, Trish made some desserts, Marcy was there, we got all, and, and the whole staff came and we set up this banquet for them. And it wasn't like, hey, we're going to give you this food and then you have to listen to us talk. It was just, hey, we just want to bless you. Thanks for what you do. That's it. We're just trying to be kind. We're trying to be like, I could see Jesus doing that. There's that one story when he multiplied the five loaves and fish, right? And then he fed 5,000. There weren't 5,000 police officers. And we had a lot of chicken wings, actually. But I kind of felt like that's a kingdom thing. And by the end, I, I got to talk to a few guys who really opened up to the things that they were going through. And we got to talk about it. And maybe one day I get to share even more with them. But here's my point. Sometimes a kingdom thing is a small thing. But God takes a small thing. And he makes it a big thing. All right, so number one is Jesus' mission. <laughs> Nobody look at the clock right now. Don't anybody look at your watch. Nobody look at your watch. All right, Jesus' mission. These will be quicker. Number two, Jesus' method. Back to verse one. And it says there, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. This is Jesus' method. To do and to teach. Now, there's a lot of talk in our culture right now. Uh, especially in things in politics and things like that, and there's a lot of talk, and it's a lot of talk, talk, talk. And, and usually the talk is very critical. Usually the talk is very judgmental. Usually the talk is labeling people so we can dismiss them and not listen to them. Uh, there's a lot of talk. There's not much doing. But Jesus' method was do, then teach. Sounds kind of like Ezra in the Old Testament, Ezra 7.10. You remember this? It says this, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. So here's what Ezra, Ezra said. I've set my heart to do this. I'm going to study God's word. I'm going to do God's word. And I'm going to teach God's word in that order. And that also is Jesus' method. They said he was there to do and to teach. This is Jesus' model of kingdom discipleship. Jesus' method of discipleship wasn't just about knowing stuff. Now, it was that. Now, there is stuff you should know. You should study the Bible. There are things you should learn. You should, as the New Testament calls it, there are sound doctrine. And you should know sound doctrine, okay? That's, that's very important. But it's, discipleship of Jesus is more than knowledge. It's obedience. It's not just, can I pass a theological test, that's good, but do I live what I know? And if we're honest, I mean, just, just for a second, and we'll go back to church. Uh, it, if we're just honest for a second, most of us know more than we actually do. And the call of Jesus, do and teach this is how you grow. This is how you see God move in your life and see him move through your life to other people. A number of years ago, we had a, a brother here at the church who was a heart surgeon. Some of you remember Dr. Thomas Matthew, and uh, uh, we were friends, and I got to scrub in some surgeons, surgeries with him. Um, I, I didn't help him. <laughs> Just so in case anybody was nervous for the people that were operated on, I prayed, though. Um, and, and so uh, w one day we're, we're scrubbing in for, he's going to do this open heart on this dude. And uh, so we're scrubbing in, you know, and I'm acting like I know what I'm doing. Uh, and, and I said, hey, you know, Thomas, like, how do you learn new procedures? Because I know there's new procedures coming out. You can't keep going back to med school. How do you learn new ones? And he, without a hesitation, said, see one, do one, teach one. 
That's how you learn. See one, do one, teach one. So if there's a new uh, uh, way of doing surgery, you watch somebody else who's done it before. You go in and you see them do it. Then you do one yourself with them there, okay, so that in case you come into something that you don't know about, you, you do one. And then, this is very interesting, he said, you don't really know a procedure until you've taught it to somebody else. See one, do one, then teach one, and now you know the procedure. It's like when I was in school, in grad school, we, had a, we took a class in modal logic, and, and it was like, you know, hard. And we, 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 we pass, I passed the final exam, and, and, and after the exam was over, we're talking to the prof, and one of the guys said, when did you really feel like you got your head around modal logic? And his answer was, when I started teaching you jokers. <laughs> he, 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 you know who gets the most out of this message this morning? You learn more when you're teaching it to somebody else. So, so this is how Jesus said, he, see one, do one, teach one. Hear the word of God, do the word of God, and then share it with other people. This is Jesus' method. So we got Jesus' mission, Jesus' method, and number three, and very, I don't want to shortchange this one, okay, because this is super important, Jesus' power. Look at verse four. Do, this is Jesus speaking. Do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, Jesus is just beginning out volume 2 the same way he closed volume 1. Remember how Luke ends, Luke 24, 49, I am going to send you what my father promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Here's the deal. If we're going to continue Jesus' mission of the kingdom, if we're going to use Jesus' method, we are most definitely going to need Jesus' power. Please, do not try to do Jesus' mission and Jesus' method in your own strength. That is a recipe for failure and embarrassment, and I'm speaking from experience on this one. I mean, even Jesus didn't do his mission without the power of the Spirit. I mean, that's what the text says. Again, I'll just allow Scripture to make the argument for me. Looking at volume 1 in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Mary says, How's this going to be? And here's what the angel said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy Spirit was involved in Jesus' conception. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. Verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Interesting, isn't it? He's full of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit before the temptation. He comes through the temptation successfully. And now the text says he's in the power of the Spirit. Verse 18, just a few verses later, he rolls the scroll of Isaiah and he preaches, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke 10, verse 21, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, verse 2, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. 
Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So let's review. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit, anointed by the Holy Spirit, full of joy in the Holy Spirit, and gave instructions through the Holy Spirit. That was Jesus. Now, if Jesus did those things through the Holy Spirit, how do you think we should do those things? The power of the Holy Spirit? Guys, what I've discovered is that I have no confidence in programs or religion or pop ideas or methods, fads, and formulas to do the work of the kingdom. The longer I've been pastoring, the more convinced I have become that the depths of people's pain, and, and I don't know, I think, I think early on, for years actually, I think I, I was a little naive to how deep people's pain sometimes goes. I think it's because I hadn't felt a lot of pain in my life. I think I was a little naive. But now, I, I, you know, I've become more and more convinced that the depths of people's pain, their lostness, their blindness cannot be healed by human stuff. I don't care how good the human stuff is. We need more than good talks and cool songs. We need more than slick programs to do the work of the kingdom. We need a manifestation of the Spirit's power. Listen, if there's no operation of power by the Spirit, we're in big trouble. Because if there's no demonstration of power, then it's up to me and it's up to you. And I already know I cannot do Jesus' mission and Jesus' method without Jesus' power. And with all due respect, neither can you. I mean, how do you heal a broken heart? Without a demonstration of power, how do you heal a broken heart? You going to talk them out of it? hey, don't have a broken heart. (laughs) Good luck with that. Without power, I don't know how to heal a broken heart. I I have no idea how to save marriages or fix delusional minds or heal emotional wounds, and we haven't even got to people's bodies yet. I don't know how to fix those either. I mean, we, we live in a country that has a lot of division right now. I think the days ahead are going to be some challenging days. Tomorrow, the the jury begins to meet in the George Floyd case. The the prosecution has rested. The defense has rested their cases. It's going to go to the jury tomorrow. How are we going to heal the division in our nation? I got a PowerPoint. What's a PowerPoint going to do to heal centuries of sin and pain and broken hearts? Apart from a demonstration of power, I got nothing. Apart from a demonstration of power, I have no idea how to do this impossible task of the kingdom of God. But here's the good news. There is power available to us. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. 
but of power. And Jesus told his disciples to wait for it. Wait for the power. In other words, he's saying, don't try to do this mission in your own power. Wait for it. Now, there's a sense in which, because we came after the day of Pentecost, that we don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit to come anymore. There's a, it's, he's already been poured out. Right? The Spirit's been poured out. There's another sense in which we always got to wait. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to the end of Acts chapter 1. But after we wait and we receive the Spirit's power, you know what we got to do? We got to take action somehow. I think sometimes that we don't see Jesus' power because we're trying to have his power apart from his mission and his method. And I'm not sure you can walk in his power apart from his mission and his method, which is the kingdom of God. I mean, in the book of Acts, they weren't... First of all, you should read the book of Acts if you've never read it. And if you have read it, read it again, okay? Uh, but, But here's the thing. In Acts, they weren't asking for God's power so they could be more comfortable, They were asking for God's power to do his mission. In fact, pretty often, the display of power got them in trouble. You don't believe me? Acts chapter 3, Peter's on his way up to the temple, having a normal day. He didn't want to hurt anybody. He just minded his own business. And then there's a guy there who's crippled from birth, and he says, Hey, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. I'm I'm quoting a a Sunday school song now. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You'd rather I didn't sing. Okay, but that's what he said. And he doesn't get up quick enough, so Peter grabs his hand, helps him up. The dude goes running and leaping and praising God. Okay, that's the song too. And a crowd is drawn. He preaches the gospel. And guess what? He gets arrested and thrown in jail. That's what he got for a demonstration of power. You go into jail. Or how about this? In, in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, the, the text says the apostles were doing miracles. And what happened by the end of the chapter? They get, again, arrested, put in jail. This time, they get flogged too. Acts chapter 6, it says Stephen was doing miracles. And what happened in Acts 7? He got stoned. And so we're clear for the young people, that doesn't mean he was smoking dope. He had rocks thrown at him. <laughs> Acts 14. In Lystra, there's a lame guy. Paul's preaching, all right? Paul's preaching, and in the middle of the sermon, he looked, the text will say, and I'm quoting the text, don't think you're being a little too charismatic. I'm just saying what the Bible says. He's pre- while he's preaching, he looks over, and the text will say, Paul saw that he had faith to be healed. It was a lame dude. So he just says, in the middle of the sermon, can you imagine I'm preaching along? Hey, get up. The dude gets up. And the people in Lystra think that Paul and the guys with him are gods, right? So they want to start worshiping him as gods. The, 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 what was the Zeus, the temple for Zeus, the, the main priest goes and gets a bull and he's going to sacrifice it as if they're gods. And Paul and their brothers are saying, ripping their clothes, we're not gods, you know, we're, we're just men like you. That's pretty powerful stuff. Two verses later, some Jews come from Antioch, I think it was, and stone Paul. I mean, can you imagine? Just a few seconds ago, they're a god. A few seconds later, stone him. The text said they pulled, they drug him out to the outside of the city thinking he was dead. The apostles got around him. It doesn't really say what they did, but they got around him. Then he got up and went back into the city, and the text will say he left the next day. Well, I guess so. I mean, if y'all stone me today, I ain't coming back tomorrow. Here's my point. Here's my point. 
they weren't asking for the power just to make their lives cool. They weren't asking for the power to make their life more comfortable. They were on Jesus' mission, and they were using Jesus' method, and they experienced Jesus' power and persecution, which Kevin Wu so eloquently reminded us last week is par for the course for a disciple of Jesus. See, as I read the book of Acts, I noticed that the Holy Spirit did some incredible stuff, but it always required some action from someone. They're they're almost always, when you read Acts, there's an element of risk. They had to step out. They had to get into a place led by the Spirit. And and, and please, I'm not just saying being crazy. I'm just saying be led by the Spirit. And being led by the Spirit, they got to a place where if God didn't come through, they were in trouble. We, on the other hand, often like to play it safe, don't we? Could it be? Just wondering, just asking a question. I've been asking myself this question this week. Is it possible that we don't see more of the power stuff because we really haven't stepped out of our comfort zones very often? One last story, then I'll be done. Um, A number of years ago, uh, 15 or so, uh, I got to uh, study at Oxford University. And the city of Oxford is just filled with historical places and things that happen there. It's like a church history book walking down the street. And um, so I was staying at Christ Church, which is where John Wesley studied. John Owen studied there. Uh, You know, the the dining room was the Great Hall, which was built by King Henry VIII 500 years ago. This is where we had breakfast. So one day I'm walking down the street. I'm going to the lecture because there's a lecture hall that we had to go to for this class I was taking. And I look across the street, and here's what I see when I look across the street. And I think to myself, wait a second, I have seen that in history books before, that picture. And, and you're probably thinking, really, all week long you're walking, but it took till like Thursday until you saw this? All of Oxford looks like that. Like, there's those kind of buildings everywhere, right? And I look across and I go, is that? And sure enough, there's a little sign that says, University Church of St. Mary the Virgin." And I'm thinking, I know what happened there in history. So I'm thinking maybe I could go in. You know, I mean, I was going to be late to my lecture, but that day it was like Sigmund Freud's philosophy of personhood or something. If you've ever read Sigmund Freud, you know why I was happy to miss that day. Um, so I crossed the street just to go see if it's, and it's unlocked. So I'm like, I feel like I should go in here. So I go in, and you go into the, to inside the sanctuary, and this is kind of hard to see there, but there's a pulpit there that goes, kind of wraps around the side. Um, um, uh, John Owen had spoken there. Cardinal John Henry Newman spoke there. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually gave a lecture there one time. Uh, it's a Catholic church. He was Anglican, but he spoke there. So I kind of feel like I should go into that pulpit. But then it had a sign that said, to all Americans, do not go in the pulpit. Like, I guess, I guess this is a problem um, <laughs> to single us out, you know. But anyway, I wasn't offended. If you're British, I'm not, I'm not offended. Um, uh, so there's a column there, and you're going to see another picture where there's a column specifically with a little ch- chart. And it, it's hard to see in the picture, but there's a notch out of this column right there. And that is where they built a stage during the Reformation. Now, during the Reformation in England, England went back and forth between being Protestant and Catholic, basically based on who King Henry VIII was married to at the moment. That's a little of an exaggeration, but not by much. 
So when he was married to a Catholic, you know, Catherine, they were Catholic. When he's married to Anne Boleyn, they were Protestant. They went back and forth. And while they were Catholic, there were a couple of Protestant bishops, leaders, who were preaching, you are saved by grace through faith alone, right, get captured and condemned for heresy. And in this church and in that poll right there, the very same one, this is 500 years ago, roughly speaking, right around ballpark, uh, they built this little stage out from that right there, and, and they told these three guys, Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley were their last names, they told them, you got to recant, and Cranmer at first recanted, and recant means to take back what you said, and so he signed a thing, and then he recanted his recantation. He took back his take backs. And all three of them were condemned to be burned at the stake. So I'm in there, and nobody was in there at the time I was in there, and I just have a moment of thinking, what would I do? Like, what would I do? So I decided to take the walk that they took, because you can walk down the street there in Oxford, and it's around the corner. It's either on High Street or Broad Street, and there's a place in the road where they were burned at the stake, and there's a little cross. It's right in the middle of the road now. Right, that's right where they were. So Thomas Cramer was burned at the stake first, and in order to an act of repentance, he put his hand that had signed the recantation, he put his hand in the fire first. And then they, they took Latimer and Ridley and they bound them with chains back to back. And they lit the fire. And as the flames came up, Ridley cried out in pain. Which seems okay to me. But through the flames, other people heard these words from Latimer. Chained together, fire leaping up around them. Play the man, Master Ridley, for tonight we shall light such a fire in all of England that shall never be quenched. Man, <laughs> that is a real vital faith, and what a contrast to what we have today. These guys, flames leaping up. People are dying. It looks like their cause is over. And what are they saying? We're lighting a fire. We're taking, we win. Man, contrast that today with your average evangelifish Christian. Who's upset about a lot of things. Who's angry about everything. Who is critical of everybody but can't get off the couch to do anything for Jesus or take a risk, and they're wondering, why don't we see more power? Here's the deal. You know what this text says? Same Jesus. We have the same Holy Spirit. He didn't go anywhere. And if we'll step out to see Jesus' mission and Jesus' method, I believe we'll experience Jesus' power. 